Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. Volume 5, Chapter 15 It's always disconcerting to have even a smaller chap as Gussie take you squarely in the midriff, as I can testify, having had the same experience down in Washington Square during a visit to New York City. Washington Square is bountifully supplied with sad-eyed Italian kids who whizzed to and fro on roller skates, and one of them, proceeding on his way with lowered head, rammed me in the neighborhood of the third waistcoat button at a high rate of MPH. It gave me a strange, where am I feeling, and I imagine Spode's sensations were somewhat similar. His breath escaped in a sharp oof, and he swayed like some forest tree beneath the woodsman's axe. Unfortunately, Gussie had paused to sway too, and this gave Spode time to steady himself on an even keel and regroup his forces. Reaching out a ham-like hand, he attached it to the scruff of Gussie's neck and said, Ha! Ha is one of those things it's never easy to find the right reply to. It resembles you in that respect. But Gussie was saved the necessity of searching for words by the fact that he was being shaken like a cocktail in a manner that precluded speech, if precluded is the word I want. His spectacles fell off and came to rest where I was standing. I picked them up with a view to returning them to him when he had need of them, which I could see would not be immediately. As this fake noddle was a boyhood friend with whom, as I have said, I had frequently shared my last bar of chocolate, and as it was plain that if someone didn't interfere pretty soon, he was in danger of having all his internal organs shaken into a hash, the thought of taking some steps to put an end to this distressing scene naturally crossed my mind. The problem presenting several points of interest was, of course, what steps to take. My tonnage was quite insufficient to enable me to engage Spode in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, and I toyed with the idea of striking him on the back of the head with a log of wood. But this project was rendered null and void by the fact that there were no logs of wood present. These yew alleys or rhododendron walks provide twigs and fallen leaves, but nothing in the shape of logs capable of being used as clubs and I had just decided that something might be accomplished by leaping onto Spode's back and twining my arms around his neck when I heard Stiffy cry out, Harold! One gathered what she was driving at. Gussie was no particular buddy of hers, but she was a tender-hearted young prune, and one always likes to save a fellow creature if possible. She was calling on Stinker to get into the act and save Gussie's, and a quick look at him showed me that he was at a loss to know how to proceed. He stood there, passing a finger thoughtfully over his chin like a cat in an adage. I knew what was stopping him getting action. It was not. It's on the tip of my tongue. Begins with a P. I've heard Jeeves use it. Pusillanimity. That's it. Meaning, broadly, that a fellow is suffering from a pronounced case of cold feet. It was not, as I was saying when I interrupted myself, pusillanimity that held him back. Under normal conditions, Lyons could have taken his correspondence course and had he encountered Spode on the football field, he would have had no hesitation in springing at his neck and twisting it into a lover's knot. The trouble was that he was a curate, and the brass hats of the church look askance at curates who swat parishioners. Sock your flock, and you're sunk. So now he shrank from intervening, and when he did intervene, it was merely with the soft word that's supposed to turn away wrath. I say, you know what? He said... I could have told him he was approaching the thing from the wrong angle. When a gorilla like Spode is letting his angry passions rise, there is little or no percentage in the mild remonstrance. Seeming to realize this, he advanced to where the blighter now was, or so it appeared, trying to strangle Gussie, and laid a hand on his shoulder. Then, seeing that this too achieved no solid results, he pulled. There was a rending sound, and the clothing hand relaxed its grip. I don't know if you've ever tried detaching a snow leopard of the Himalayas from its prey. Probably not, as most people don't find themselves out that way much. But if you did, you would feel fairly safe in budgeting for a show of annoyance on the animal's part. It was the same with Spode. Incensed at what I suppose seemed to him this unwarrantable interference with his aims and objects, he hit Stinker in the nose. And all the doubts that had been bothering that man of God vanished in a flash. I should imagine that if there's one thing that makes a fellow forget that he's in holy orders, it's a crisp punch on the beezer. A moment before, Stinker had been all concerned about the disapproval of his superiors in the cloth, but now, as I read his mind, he was saying to himself, 
The hell with my superiors in the cloth. Or however a curate would put it. Let them eat cake, maybe. It was a superb spectacle while it lasted, and I was able to understand what people meant when they spoke of the church militant. A good deal to my regret, it did not last long. Spode was full of the will to win, but Stinker had the science. It was not for nothing that he had added a boxing blue to his football blue, when at the old alma mater. There was a brief mix-up, and the next thing one observed was that Spode was on the ground looking like the corpse which had been in the water several days. His left eye was swelling visibly, and a referee could have counted a hundred over him without eliciting a response. Stiffy, with a brief at-a-boy, let Stinker off, no doubt to bathe his nose and staunch the vital flow, which was considerable. I handed Gussie his glasses. He stood there twiddling with them in a sort of trance, and I made a suggestion which I felt was in his best interests. Not to presume to dictate, Gussie, but wouldn't it be wise to remove yourself before Spode comes to? From what I know of him, I think he's one of those fellows who wakes up cross. I have seldom seen anyone move quicker. We were out of the U Alley, if it was a U Alley, or the Rhododendron Rock, if that's what it was, almost before the words that had left my lips. We continued to set a good pace, but eventually we slowed up a bit, and he was able to comment on the recent scene. That was a ghastly experience, Bertie, he said. It can't at all have been pleasant, I agreed. My whole life seemed to flash before me. That's odd. You weren't drowning. No, but the principle's the same. I can tell you I was thankful when Pinker made his presence felt. What a splendid chap he is. One of the best. That's what today's church needs. More curates, capable of hauling off and letting fellows like Spode have it where it does the most good. One feels so safe when he's around. I put a point which seemed to have escaped his notice. But he won't always be around, Gussie. He has infants' Bible classes and mothers' meetings and all that sort of thing to occupy his time. And don't forget that Spode, though crushed to the earth, will rise again. His jaw sagged a bit. I never thought of that. If you take my advice, you'll clear out and go underground for a while. Stiffy would lend you her car. I believe you're right, he said adding something out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, which I thought a bit offensive. I'll leave this evening. Without saying goodbye. Of course without saying goodbye. No, don't go that way. Keep bearing to the left. I want to go to the kitchen garden. I told Em I'd meet her there. You told who? Emerald Stoker. Who did you think I meant? She had to go to the kitchen garden and gather beans and things for tonight's dinner. And there, sure enough, she was, with a large basin in her hands, busy with her domestic duties. "'Here's Bertie, M,' said Gussie, and she whisked round, spilling a bean or two. I was disturbed to see how every freckle on her face lit up as she looked at him, as if she were gazing on some lovely sight, which was far from being the case. In me, she didn't seem to be much interested. A brief hello, Bertie, appeared to cover it as far as I was concerned, but her whole attention being earmarked for Gussie. She was staring at him as a mother might have stared at a loved child who had shown up at home after a clash with one of the neighborhood children. Until then, I had been too agitated to notice how disheveled his encounter with Spode had left him. But now I saw that his general appearance was that of something that had passed through a ringer. What have you been doing to yourself? She ejaculated, if that's the word. You look like a devastated area. Inevitable in the cirques. He had a spot of unpleasantness. It was a spode. Is that the man you were telling me about? The human gorilla? That's the one. What happened? Spode tried to shake the stuffing out of him. Oh, you poor lambkins, said Emerald, addressing Gussie, not me. Gosh, I wish I had him here for a minute. I would teach him something. And by what I have always thought an odd circumstance, her wish was granted. A crashing sound, like that made by a herd of hippopotami going through the reeds on a riverbank, attracted my notice, and I beheld Spode approaching at the rate of knots with the obvious intention of resuming at as early a date as possible his investigations into the color of Gussie's insides which Stinker's intervention had compelled him to file under the head of unfinished business, in predicting that this menace in the treatment, though crushed to the earth, would rise again, I had been perfectly correct. 
there seemed to me a strong resemblance in the newcomer's manner to that of those Assyrians who, so we learn from sources close to them, came down like a wolf on the fold, with their cohorts all gleaming with purple and gold. He could have walked straight into their camp, and they would have laid down the red carpet for him, recognizing him instantly as one of their own boys. But where the Assyrians had had the bulge on him was that they weren't going to find in the fold a motherly young woman with strong wrists and a basin in her hands. This basin appeared to be constructed of some thickish form of china, and as Spode grabbed Gussie and started to go into the old shaking routine, it descended on the back of his head with what some would call a dull and sickening thud. It broke into several fragments, but by that time its mission had been accomplished. His powers of resistance, sapped no doubt by his recent encounter with the Reverend H.P. Pinker, Spode fell to the earth he knew not where and lay there looking peaceful. I remember thinking at the time this was not his lucky day, and it just showed, I thought, that it's always a mistake to be a louse in human shape, as he had been from birth, because sooner or later retribution is bound to overtake you. As I recall Jeeves putting it once, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small, or worse to that effect. For a space, Emerald Stoker stood surveying her handiwork with a satisfied smile on her face, and I didn't blame her for looking a bit smug, for she had unquestionably fought the good fight. Then suddenly, with a quick old golly, she was off like a nymph, surprised while bathing, and a moment later I understood what had caused this mobility. She had seen Madeline Bassett approaching, and no cook likes to have to explain to her employer why she has been bottling her employer's guests with china basins. As Madeline's eyes fell on the remains, they widened to the size of golf balls, and she looked at Gussie as if he had been a mass murderer she wasn't very fond of. What have you been doing to Roderick? she demanded. I said Gussie. I said, what have you done to Roderick? Gussie adjusted his spectacles and shrugged her shoulder. Oh, that. I merely chastised him. The fellow had only himself to blame. He asked for it, and I had to teach him a lesson. You brute! Not at all. He had the option of withdrawing. He must have foreseen what would happen when he saw me remove my glasses. When I remove my glasses, those who know what's good for them take to the hills. I hate you! I hate you! cried Madeline, a thing I didn't know anyone ever said except in the second act of a musical comedy. You do? said Gussie. Yes, I do. Well, then in that case, said Gussie, I shall now eat a ham sandwich. And this he proceeded to do with a sort of wolfish gusto that sent cold shivers down my spine, and Madeline shrieked sharply. This is the end, she said, another thing you don't often hear. When things between two once-loving hearts have hotted up to this extent, it is always the prudent course for the innocent bystander to edge away, and this I did. I started back to the house, and in the drive I met Jeeves. He was at the wheel of Stiffy's car. Beside him, looking like a Scotch elder rebuking sin, was the dog Bartholomew. Good evening, sir, he said. I've been taking this little fellow to the veterinary surgeon. Miss Bing was uneasy because he bit Mr. Finknottle. She was afraid he might have caught something. I am glad to say the surgeon has given him a clean bill of health. Jeeves, I have a horrid tale to relate. Indeed, sir. The loot is mute, I said. And as briefly as possible, put him in possession of the facts. When I had finished, he agreed that it was most disturbing. But I fear there is nothing to be done, sir. I reeled. I've grown so accustomed to seeing Jeeves solve every problem, however sticky, that this frank confession of his inability to deliver the goods unmanned me. You're baffled? Yes, sir. At a loss? Precisely, sir. Possibly at some future date a means of adjusting matters will occur to me, but at the moment... I regret to say I can think of nothing. I am sorry, sir. I shrugged the shoulders. The iron had entered into my soul, but the upper lip was stiff. It's all right, Jeeves. Not your fault for a thing like this. Lazy was stymie. Drive on, Jeeves, I said, and he drove on. The dog Bartholomew gave me an unpleasantly superior look as they moved off, as if asking me if I was saved. 
I pushed along to my room, the only spot in this joint of terror where anything in the nature of peace and quiet was to be had. Not that even there one got much of it. The fierce rush of life at Totley Tower had got me down, and I wanted to be alone. I suppose I must have sat there for more than half an hour, trying to think what was to be done for the best, and then, out of what I have heard Jeeves describe as the welter of emotions, one coherent thought emerged, and that was that if I didn't shortly get a snifter, I would expire in my tracks. It was now the cocktail hour, and I knew that whatever his faults, Sir Watkin Bassett provided a pair of teeths for his guests. True, I had promised Stiffy that I would avoid his society, but I had not anticipated then that this emergency would arise. It was a straight choice between betraying her trust and perishing where I sat, and I decided on the former alternative. I found Pop Bassett in the drawing-room with a well-laden tray at his elbow, and hurried forward licking my lips. To say that he looked glad to see me would be overstating it, but he offered me a lifesaver and I accepted it gratefully. An awkward silence of about twenty minutes had followed, and then, just as I had finished my second and was fishing for the olive, Stiffy entered. She gave me a quick reproachful look, and I could see that her trust in Bertram's promises would never be the same again. But it was to Pop Bassett that she directed her attention. Hello, Uncle Watkin. Good evening, my dear. Having a spot before dinner? I am. You think you are? Said Stiffy. But you're not, and I'll tell you why. There isn't going to be any dinner. The cook has eloped with Cassie Finknottle. Chapter 16 I wonder if you've ever noticed a rather peculiar thing, viz, how differently the same news item can affect two different people. I mean, you tell something to Jones and Brown, let us say, and while Jones sits plunged in gloom and looking licked to the splinter, Brown gives three rousing cheers and goes into a buck-and-wing dance. And the same thing is true of Smith and Robinson. It has often struck me as curious, that has. And so it was now. Listening to the recent heated exchanges between Madeline Bassett and Gussie hadn't left me what you might call optimistic, but the heart bowed down with a weight of woe to the weakest hope will cling, as the fellow said. And I had to tell myself that their mutual love, though admittedly having taken it on the chin at the moment, might eventually get cracking again, causing all to be forgotten and forgiven. I mean to say, remorse has frequently been known to set in after a dust-up between a couple of trough-plighters, with all that sorry-I-was-cross-and-can-you-forgive-me stuff. And love being down in the cellar for a time with no takers, perks up and carries on again, good as new. And blessings on the falling out, that all the more endears is the way that I heard Jeeves put it once. But at Stiffy's words, this hope collapsed as if it had been struck on the back of the head with a china basin, containing beans, when I sank forward in my chair, the face buried in my hands. It's always my policy to look on the bright side, but in order to do this, you have to have a bright side to look on. And under existing conditions, there wasn't one. This, as Madeline Bassett would have said, was the end. I had come to this house as a raisonneur, to bring the young folks together. But however much of a raisonneur you are, you can't bring young folks together if one of them elopes with somebody else. You are not merely hampered but shackled. So now, as I say, I sank forward into my chair, the F buried in the H. To Pop Bassett, on the other hand, this bit of front-page news had plainly come as rare and refreshing fruit. My face being buried as stated, I couldn't see if he went into a buck-and-wing dance, but... I should think it highly probable that he did a step or two, for he spoke, you could tell, from the timbre of his voice, that he was feeling about as pepped up as a man can feel without bursting. One can understand his fizziness, of course. Of all the prospective son-in-laws in existence, Gussie, with the possible exception of Bertram Worcester, was the one he would have chosen last. He had viewed him with concern from the start, and if he had been living back in the days when fathers called the shots in matters of their daughters' marriages, would have forbidden the bands without a second thought. Gussie once told me that when he, Gussie, was introduced to him, Bassett, as the fellow who was to marry his, Bassett's offspring, he, Bassett, had started to stare at him with his jaw dropping, and then in a sort of strangled voice had said, What? incredulously, if you see what I mean, as if he were hoping that they were just playing a jolly practical joke on him, and that in due course, the real chap would jump out from behind a chair and say, April Fools! 
and when he, Bassett, at last had got on to it that there was no deception and that Gussie was really what he had drawn, he went off into a corner and sat there motionless, refusing to speak when spoken to. Little wonder, then, that Stiffy's announcement had bucked him up like a dose of Dr. Somebody's tonic swamp juice, which acts directly on the red corpuscles and imparts a gentle glow. Eloped? He gurgled. That's right. With the cook? With none other, and that's why I said there wasn't going to be any dinner. We shall have to make do with hard-boiled eggs, if there are any left over from the treat. The mention of hard-boiled eggs made Pop Bassett wince for a moment, and one could see that his thoughts had flitted back to the tea tent. But he was far too happy to allow sad memories to trouble him for long. With a wave of the hand, he dismissed dinner as something that didn't matter one way or the other. The Bassets, the wave suggested, could rough it if they had to. Are you sure of your facts, my dear? I met them as they were starting off. Gussie said he hoped I wouldn't mind him borrowing my car. You reassured him, I trust. Oh, yes, I said. That's all right, Gussie. Help yourself. Good girl. Excellent girl. Fine response. Then they have really gone. With the wind. And they plan to get married. As soon as Gussie can get a special license, you have to apply to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I'm told he stings you for quite a bit. Money well spent. That's how Gussie feels. He told me he was dropping the cook at Bertie's aunt's place and then going on to London to confer with the Archbishop. He's full of zeal, you see. This extraordinary statement that Gussie was landing Emerald Stoker on Aunt Dahlia brought my head up with a jerk. I found myself speculating on how the old flesh and blood was going to take the intrusion, and it gave me rather an odd feeling to think how deep Gussie's love for M might be to make him face such fearful risks. The aged relative has a strong personality and finds no difficulty when displeased in reducing the object of her displeasure to a spot of grease in a matter of minutes. I am told the sportsman whom in her hunting days she had occasionally to rebuke for riding over hounds were never the same again and for months would go about in a sort of stupor, starting at sudden noises. My head was up now. I was able to see Pop Bassett, and I found he was regarding me with an eye so benevolent that I could hardly believe that this was the same ex-magistrate with whom I had so recently been hobnobbing. If you call it hobnobbing when a couple of fellows sit in a couple of chairs for twenty minutes without saying a word to each other. It was plain that Joy had made him the friend to all the world even to the extent of allowing him to look at Bertram without a shudder. He was more like something out of Dickens than anything human. Your glass is empty, Mr. Worcester. He cried buoyantly. May I refill it? I said he might. I had had two, which is generally my limit, but with my aplomb shattered, I felt that a third wouldn't hurt. Indeed, I would have been willing to go even more deeply into the thing. I once read about a man who used to drink twenty-six martinis before dinner, and the conviction was beginning to steal over me that he had had the right idea. Roderick tells me. He proceeded, as sunny as if a crack of his had been greeted with laughter in court, that the reason you were unable to be with us at the school treat this afternoon was that urgent family business called you to Brinkley Court. I trust everything turns out satisfactorily. Oh, yes, thanks. We all missed you, but business before pleasure, of course. How was your uncle? You found him well, I hope. Yes, he was fine. And your aunt? She's gone off to London. Indeed. You must have been sorry not to have seen her. I know few women I admire more. So hospitable, so breezy. I have seldom enjoyed anything more than my recent visit to her house. I think his exuberance would have led him to continue in the same strain indefinitely. But at this point... Stiffy came out of the thoughtful silence into which she had fallen. She had been standing there regarding him with a speculative eye, as if debating within herself whether or not to start something, and now she gave the impression that her mind was made up. I'm glad to see you so cheerful, Uncle Watkin. I was afraid my news might upset you. Upset me? said Pop Bassett incredulously. Whatever put that idea into your head? Well, you're short one son-in-law. It is precisely that that has made this the happiest day of my life. Then you could make it the happiest of mine. 
said Stiffy, striking while the iron was H. By giving Harold that vicarage. Most of my attention, as you may well imagine, being concentrated on contemplating the soup in which I was immersed, I cannot say whether or not Pop Bassett hesitated, but if he did, it was only for an instant. No doubt for a second or two, the vision of that hard-boiled egg rose before him, and he was conscious again of the resentment he had been feeling at Stinker's failure to keep a firm hand on the junior members of his flock. But the thought that Augustus Finknoddle was not to be his son-in-law drove the young cleric's shortcomings from his mind. Filled with the milk of human kindness, so nearly to the brim that you could almost hear it sloshing about inside of him, he was in no shape to deny anything to anyone. I really believe that if at this point in the proceedings I had tried to touch him for a fiver, he would have parted with it without a cry. Of course, of course, of course, of course, he said, caroling like one of Jeeves's locks on the wing. I'm sure that Pinker will make an excellent vicar. The best, said Stiffy. He's wasted as a curate, no scope, running under wraps. Unleash him as a vicar, and he'll be the talk of the established church. He's as hot as a pistol. I have the highest opinion of Harold Pinker. I'm not surprised. All the nibs feel the same. They know he's got what it takes. Very sound on doctrine, and he can preach like a streak. Yes, I like his sermons. Manly and straightforward. That's because he's one of these healthy outdoor open-air men. Muscular Christianity, that's his dish. He used to play football for England. Indeed. He was what's called a prop forward. Really? At the words prop forward, I had, of course, started visibly. I hadn't known that that's what Stinker was, and I was thinking how ironical life could be. I mean to say, there was Plank searching high and low for a forward of this nature, saying to himself he would pretty soon have to give up his hopeless quest, and here I was in a position to fill that bill out for him. But owing to the strained conditions of our relations, unable to put him onto this good thing. Very sad, I felt, and the thought occurred to me, as it had often done before, that one ought to be kind even to the very humblest, because you never know when they may not come in useful. Then I may tell Harold that the balloon's going up? Asked Stiffy. I beg your pardon? I mean, it's official about this vicarage. Oh, certainly, 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 yes. Oh, Uncle Watkin, how can I thank you? Oh, it's quite all right, my dear, quite all right. Said Pop Bassett, more Dickensian than ever. And now, he went on, parting from his moorings and making for the door. You will have to excuse me, Stephanie, and you, Mr. Worcester. I must go to Madeline and... Congratulate her? I was about to say dry her tears. If any. You do not think she will be in a state of dejection? Would any girl be who's been saved by a miracle from having to marry Gussie Finknottle? True, true, very true, said Pop Bassett, and he was out of the room like one of those wing three-quarters who, even if they can't learn to give the reverse pass, are fast. If there had been any uncertainty as to whether Sir Watkin Bassett had done a bucket wing dance, there was none about Stiffy doing one now. She pirouetted freely, and the dullest eye could discern that it was only the fact that she hadn't one on that kept her from strewing roses from her hat. I had seldom seen a young shrimp so above herself, and I, having Stinker's best interests at heart, packed all my troubles into the old kit bag for the time being and rejoiced with her. If there's one thing Bertram Worcester is, and always has been nippy at, it's forgetting his personal worries when a pal is celebrating some stroke of good fortune. For some time, Stiffy monopolized the conversation, not letting me get a word in edgewise. Women are singularly gifted in this respect. The frailest of them has the lung power of a gramophone record and the flow of speech of a regimental sergeant major. I've known my Aunt Agatha to go on calling me names long after you would have supposed that both breath and inventiveness would have given out. Her theme was the stupendous bit of good luck which was about to befall Stinker's new parishioners, for they would be getting not only the perfect vicar, the saintly character who would do the square thing by their souls, but in addition, the sort of vicar's wife you dream about. It was only when she paused after drawing me a picture of herself doling out soup to the deserving poor and asking in a gentle voice after their rheumatism that I was able to rise to a point of order. In the midst of all this joyousness and backslapping, a sobering thought had occurred to me. I agree with you, I said that this would appear to be the happy ending, 
and I can quite see how you would have arrived at that conclusion, that it's the maddest, merriest day of all the glad new year, but there's something you ought to have given a thought to, and it seems to me you're overlooking it. What's that? I don't think I've missed anything. That promise of Pop Bass's to give you the vicarage. All in order, surely. What's your kick? I was only thinking that if I were you, I'd get it in writing. This stopped her as if she had bumped into a prop forward. The ecstatic animation faded from her face to be replaced by the anxious look and the quick chewing of the lower lip. It was plain I had given her food for thought. Why? You think Uncle Watkin would double-cross us? There are no limits to what your foul Uncle Watkin can do if the mood takes him, I responded gravely. I wouldn't trust him an inch. Where's Stinker? Out on the lawn, I think. Then get hold of him and bring him here, and have Pop Bassett embody the thing in the form of a letter. I suppose you know you're making my flesh creep. I'm merely pointing out the road to safety. She mused for a while, and the lower lip got a bit more chewing done to it. All right, she said at length. I'll fetch Harold. And it wouldn't hurt to bring in a couple of lawyers, too, I said as she whizzed past me. It was about five minutes later, as I was falling into a reverie and brooding once more on the extreme stickiness of my affairs, that Jeeves came in and told me I was wanted on the telephone. Chapter 17 I paled beneath my tan. Who is it, Jeeves? Mrs. Travers, sir. Precisely what I had feared. It was, as I've indicated, an easy drive from Totley Towers to Brinkley Court, and in his exhilarated state, Gussie would no doubt have kept a firm foot on the accelerator and given the machine all the gas at his disposal. I presumed that he and his girlfriend must have arrived and that this telephone call was Aunt Dahlia what the helling. Knowing how keenly the old bean resented being made the recipient of anything in the nature of funny business, into which category Gussie's butting in uninvited with this M in attendance would unquestionably fall. I braced myself for the coming storm with as much fortitude as I could muster. You might say, of course, that his rash act was no fault of mine and had nothing to do with me, but it's practically routine for aunts to blame nephews for everything that happens. It seems to be what nephews are for. It was only by an oversight I have always felt that my Aunt Agatha omitted to hold me responsible a year or two ago when her young son, Thomas, nearly got sacked from the scholastic institution which he attends for breaking out at night in order to go and shy for coconuts at the local amusement park. How does she seem, Jeeves? Sir. Did she give you the impression that she was splitting a gusset? Not particularly, sir. Mrs. Trapper's voice is always robust. Would there be any reason why she should be splitting the gusset to which you refer? You bet there would be. No time to tell you now, but the skies are darkening, and the air is full of V-shaped depressions off the coast of Iceland. I am sorry, sir. Nor are you the only one. Who is the fellow of fellows? For I believe there was more than one who went into the burning fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sir. That's right. The names were on the tip of my tongue. I read about them when I won my scripture knowledge prize at school. Well, I know just how they must have felt. Aunt Dahlia, I said, for I had now reached the instrument. I'd been expecting to have my ear scorched with well-chosen words, but to my surprise she seemed in a merry mood. There was no suggestion of recrimination in her voice. Hello there, you young menace to Western civilization! She boomed. How are you? Still ticking over? To a certain extent. And you? I'm fine. Did I interrupt you in the middle of your tenth cocktail? My third, I corrected. I usually stay steady at two, but Pop Bassett insisted on replenishing my glass. He's a bit above himself at the moment, and very much the master of the rebels. I wouldn't put it past him to have an ox roasted hold in the marketplace if he could find an ox. Stinko, is he? Not perhaps Stinko, but certainly effervescent. Well, if you can suspend your drunken orgy for a minute or two, I'll tell you the news from home. I got back from London a quarter of an hour ago, and what do you think I found waiting on the mat? That newt-collecting freak, Spink Bottle, accompanied by a girl who looks like a Pekingese with freckles. I drew a deep breath and embarked on my speech for the defense. If Bertram was to be put in the right light, now was the moment. 
True, her manner so far had been affable, and she had given no sign of being about to go off with a bang. But one couldn't be sure that that wasn't because she was just biding her time. It's never safe to dismiss ants lightly at times like this. Yes, I said. I heard he was on his way, complete with freckled human Pekingese. Sorry, Aunt Dahlia, that you should have been subjected to this unwarrantable intrusion, and I would like to make it abundantly clear that it was not the outcome of any advice or encouragement from me. I was in total ignorance of his intention. Had he confided in me his purpose of inflicting his presence on you, I should have... Here I paused, for she had asked me rather brusquely to put a sock in it. Stop babbling, Bertie, you ghastly young gasbag! What's all this silver-tongued orator stuff about? I was merely expressing my regret that you should have been subjected to. Well, don't. There's no need to apologize. I couldn't be more pleased. I admit I'm always happier when I don't have spink bottle breathing down the back of my neck and taking up space in the house which I require for other purposes. But the girl was as welcome as mana in the wilderness. Having won that prize for scripture knowledge I was speaking of, I had no difficulty in grasping her illusion. She was referring to an incident which occurred when the children of Israel were crossing some desert or other and were sorely in need of refreshment, rations being on the slender side. And they were just saying to one another how well a spot of manna would go down and regretting that there was none in the quartermaster's stores, when blowed if a whole wad of the stuff didn't just descend from the skies, making their day. Her words had, of course, surprised me somewhat, and I asked her why Emerald Stoker had been as welcome as manna in the W. Because her arrival brought sunshine into a stricken home. This couldn't have been a smoother piece of timing. You didn't see Anatole when you were over here this afternoon, did you? No, why? I was wondering if you had noticed something wrong with him. Shortly after you left, he developed a mall au foie, or whatever it's called, and took to his bed. Oh, I'm sorry. So was Tom. He was looking forward gloomily to a dinner cooked by the kitchen maid, who, though a girl of many sterling merits, always adopts the scorched earth policy when preparing a meal, and you know what his digestion is like. Conditions looked dark, and then Spink Bottle suddenly revealed that this Pekingese of his was an experienced chef, and she's taken over. Who is she? Do you know anything about her? I was, of course, able to supply the desired information. She's the daughter of a well-to-do American millionaire called Stoker, who I imagine will be full of strange oaths when he hears she's marrying Gussie, the latter being, as you will concede, not everybody's cup of tea. So he isn't going to marry Madeline Bassett? No, the fixture has been scratched. That's definite, is it? Yes. You can't have had much success as a raisonneur. No. Well, I think she'll make Spink Bottle a good wife. Seems like a very nice girl. There are few better. But this leaves you in rather a spot, doesn't it, Bertie? If Madeline Bassett is now at large, won't she expect you to fill in? That aged relative is the fear that haunts me. Has Jeeves nothing to suggest? He says he hasn't, but I've known him on previous occasions to be temporarily baffled and then suddenly to wave his magic wand and fix everything up. So I haven't entirely lost hope. No, I expect you'll wriggle out of it somehow as you always do. I wish I had a fiber for every time you've been within a step of the altar rails and have managed to escape unscathed. I remember you telling me once that you had faith in your star. Quite. Still, it's no good trying to pretend the peril doesn't loom. It looms like the dickens. The corner in which I find myself is tight. And you would like to get that way too, I suppose. All right, you can get back to your orgy when I've told you why I rang up. Haven't you already, I said, surprised? Certainly not. You don't catch me wasting time and money chatting with you about your amours. Here is the nub. You know that black amber thing of Bassett's? The statuette, of course. I want to buy it for Tom. I've come into a bit of money. The reason I went to London today was to see my lawyer about a legacy someone's left me. Old school friend, if that's of any interest to you. It works out to a couple of thousand quid, and I want you to get that statuette for me. It's going to be pretty hard to get away with it. Oh, you'll manage. 
Go as high as fifteen hundred pounds if you have to. I suppose you couldn't just slip it into your pocket. It would save a lot of overhead. But probably that's asking too much of you. So tackle Bassett and get him to send it to you. I'll do my best. I know how much Uncle Tom covets that statue. Rely on me, Aunt Dahlia. That's my boy. I returned to the drawing room in a somewhat pensive mood, for my relations with Pop Bassett was such that it was going to be embarrassing trying to do business with him. But I was relieved that the aged relative had dismissed the idea of purloining the thing. Surprised, too, as well as relieved, because the stern lesson association with her over the years has taught me is that when she wants to do a loved husband a good turn, she is seldom fussy about the methods employed at the end. It was she who had initiated, if that's the word I want, the theft of the cow creamer, and you would have thought she would have wanted to save money on the current deal. Her view has always been that if a collector pinches something from another collector, it doesn't count as stealing. And of course, there may be something in it. Pop Bassett, when at Brinkley, would unquestionably have looted Uncle Tom's collection had he not been closely watched. These collectors have about as much conscience as the smash-and-grab fellows for whom the police are always spreading dragnets. I was musing along these lines and trying to think what would be the best way of approaching Pop, handicapped as it would be by the fact that he shuddered like a jelly in a high wind every time he saw me, and preferred when in my presence to sit and stare before him without uttering, when the door opened and Spode came in. Chapter 18 the first thing that impressed itself of the senses was that he had about as spectacular a black eye as you could meet in a month of Sundays. And I found myself at a momentary loss to decide how it was best to react to it. I mean, some fellows with bunged up eyes want sympathy. Others prefer that you pretend that you've noticed nothing unusual in their appearance. I came to the conclusion that it was wisest to greet him with a careless, Ah, Spode! And I did so. Though I suppose, looking back, that ah, sit cup would have been more suitable. And it was as I spoke that I became aware that he was glaring at me with a sinister manner in his eye. The one that wasn't closed. I have spoken of these eyes of his as being capable of opening an oyster at sixty paces. And even when only one of them was functioning, the impact of his gaze was disquieting. I have known my Aunt Agatha's gaze to affect me in the same way. I was looking for you, Worcester. He said, he uttered the words in the unpleasant, rasping voice which had kept his followers on the jump. Before he had succeeded to his new title, he had been one of those dictators who were fairly common at one time in the metropolis and had gone about with a mob of underlings wearing black shorts and shouting Hail Spode, or words along those general lines. He gave it up when he became Lord Sidcup, but he was still apt to address all and sundry as if he was ticking off some erring member of his entourage, whose shorts had got a patch on them. How were you, I said. I was. He paused for a moment, continuing to give me the eye, and then said, So. So is another one of those things like you and ha, which it's never easy to find the right answer to. Nothing in the way of a comeback suggested itself to me, so I merely lit a cigarette in what I intended to be a nonchalant manner, though I may have missed it by a considerable margin. And he proceeded. So I was right. Eh? In my suspicions. Eh? They've been confirmed. Eh? Will you stop saying eh, you miserable worm, and listen to me? I humoured him. You might have supposed that, having so recently seen him knocked base over Apex by Reverend H.P. Pinker, and subsequently laid out cold by Emerald Stoker and her basin of beans, I would have regarded him with contempt as pretty small-time stuff, and rebuked him sharply for calling me a miserable worm, but the idea never so much as crossed my mind. He had suffered reverses, true, but they had left him with his spirit unbroken, and the muscles of his brawny arms just as much like iron bands as they had always been. And the way I looked at it was that if he wanted me to go easy on the word A, he had only to say so. Continuing to pierce me with the eye that was still on duty, he said, I happened to be passing through the hall just now. Oh? I heard you took it on the telephone. Oh? You were speaking to your aunt. Oh? Don't keep saying, oh, blast you. 
Well, these restrictions were making it a bit hard for me to hold up my end of the conversation, but there seemed nothing to be done about it. I maintained a rather dignified silence, and he resumed his remarks. Your aunt was urging you to steal Sir Watkins' amber statuette. No, she wasn't. Pardon me, I thought you would try to deny the charge, so I took the precaution of jouting down your actual words. The statuette was mentioned, and you said... It's going to be pretty hard to get away with it. She then presumably urged you to spare no effort, for you said, Well, I'll do my best. I know how much Uncle Tom covets that statuette. Rely on me, Aunt Dahlia. What the devil are you gurgling about? I'm not gurgling, I corrected. I'm laughing lightly because you got the whole thing wrong. Though I must say, the way you've managed to record the dialogue does a good deal of credit. Do you shorthand? How do you mean I got it wrong? Aunt Dahlia was asking me to try to buy the thing from Sir Watkin. He snorted and said, ha! And I thought it a bit unjust that he should say ha if I wasn't allowed to say a and oh. There should have been a certain give and take in these matters, or where are you? Do you expect me to believe that? Don't you believe it? No, I don't. I'm not an ass. This, of course, was a debatable point, as I once heard Jeeves describe it, but I didn't press it. I know that aunt of yours. He proceeded. She would steal the filling out of your buck teeth if she thought she could do it without detection. He paused for a moment and I knew that he was thinking of the cow creamer. He had always, and I must admit not without reason, suspected the old flesh and blood of being the motive force behind his disappearance, and I imagine it had been a nasty knock to him that nothing could be proved. Well, I strongly advise you, Wooster, not to let her make you a cat's paw this time, because if you're caught, as you certainly will be, you'll be in for it. Don't think that Sir Watkin will hush the thing up to avoid scandal. You go to prison, that's where you go. He dislikes you intensely, and nothing would please him more than to be able to give you a long stretch without the option. I thought this showed a vindictive spirit in the old warthog, and one that I deplored, but I felt it would be injudicious to say so. I merely nodded understandingly. I was thankful there was no danger of this contingency, as Jeeves would have called it arising, strong in the knowledge that nothing would induce me to pinch the ruddy statuette. I was able to remain calm and nonchalant, or as calm and nonchalant as you can be when a fellow, eight foot six in height, with one eye bunged up, and the other behaving like an oxyacetylene blowpipe is glaring at you. Yes, sir, said Spode. It'll be the chokey for you. And he was going on to say that he would derive great pleasure from coming on visiting days and making faces at me through the bars when Pop Bassett returned. But a very different Bassett from the fizzy rejoicer who had exited so short while before. Then he had been all buck and beans, as any father would have been, whose daughter was not going to marry Gussie Finknottle. Now his face was drawn, and his general demeanour that of an incautious huncher who discovers, when there is no time to draw back, that he has swallowed a rather too elderly oyster. Mottlin just told me. He began. Then he saw Spode's eye and broke off. It was the sort of eye which, even if you have a lot on your mind, you can't help but noticing. Good gracious, Roderick, did you ever fall? Fall my foot? I was sucked by a curate, said Spode. Good heavens, what curate? There's only one in these parts, isn't there? You mean you were assaulted by Mr. Pig, eh? You astound me, Roderick. Spode spoke with genuine feeling. Not half as much as he astounded me. He was more or less a revelation to me. I don't mind telling you because I didn't know curates had left hooks like that. He's got a knack of fainting you off balance and then coming in with a sort of corkscrew punch that's impossible not to admire. I must get him to teach it to me sometime. You speak as though you bore him no animosity. Of course I do. A very pleasant little scrap with no ill feeling on either side. I've got nothing against Pinker. The one I've got it in for is the cook. She bean me with a churner basin. From behind of all unsporting things. If you'll excuse me, I'm gonna go have a word with the cook. He was so obviously looking forward to telling Emerald Stoker what he thought of her that it gave me quite a pang to have to break it to him that his errand would be bootless.
You can't have pointed out. She's no longer with us. Don't be an ass. She's in the kitchen, isn't she? I'm sorry, no. She's eloped with Gussie Finknoddle. A wedding has been arranged and will take place as soon as the Archbishop of Canterbury lets him have a special license. Smode reeled. He had only one eye to stare at me with, but he got all the mileage out of it that was possible. Is that true? Absolutely. Well, that makes up for everything, if Madeline's back in circulation. Thank you for telling my Worcester old chap. Don't mention it, Spode, old man. Or rather, Lord Sidcap, old man. For the first time, Pop Bassett appeared to become aware that the slight, distinguished-looking young fellow standing on one leg of the sofa was Bertram. Mr. Worcester, he said. Then he stopped and swallowed once or twice and groped his way to the table where the drinks were. His manner was feverish, having passed a liberal snootful down the hatch he was able to resume. I have just seen Madeline. Oh yes, how is she? I said courteously. Off her head, in my opinion. She says she's going to marry you. Well, I had more or less steeled myself to something along these lines, so except for quivering like a stricken blancmange and letting my lower jaw fall perhaps six inches, I betrayed no sign of discomposure, in which respect I differed radically from Spode, who reeled for the second time and uttered a cry like that of a cinnamon bear who has stubbed his toe on a passing rock. You're joking! Pop Bassett shook his head regretfully. His face was haggard. I wish I was, Roderick. I'm not surprised that you are upset. I feel the same way myself. I am distraught. I see no light on the horizon. When she told me it was as if I had been struck by a thunderbolt. Spode was staring at me aghast. Even now, it seemed, he was unable to take in the full horror of the situation. There was incredulity in his one good eye. But she can't matter that. She seems resolved to. But he's worse than that fish-faced blighter. I agree with you. Far worse. No comparison. I'm going to go have to talk to her. Said Spode and left us before I could express my resentment at being called that. It was perhaps fortunate that only half a minute later Stiffy and Stinker entered. For if I had been left alone with Pop Bassett, I would have been hard put to hit on a topic of conversation calculated to interest, elevate, and amuse.